0: This man lost seven members of his family in a couple of seconds. Seven members, including three kids. We met him and will tell you his story. And other stories from the frontline areas in Ukraine as well. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by UkraineWorld.org, a website in English about Ukraine, My name is Vladimir Yermolenko, I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Tetiana Harkova, Ukrainian scholar and journalist, head of international department at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Let me remind you that you can support us at patreon.comslash UkraineWorld. You can also support our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at PayPal, Ukraine.resisting, gmail.com. Let me also announce that we have a podcast in French, Ukraine face à la guerre. If you are a French speaker, it can be useful for you too. So, Tanya, let's uh, share our impressions, what we have seen during. Our two trips to the eastern Ukraine in April, and um, we actually have visited a lot, lot of lot, lot of towns, lot of villages: uh, Izyum, uh, Kramatorsk, Slavyansk, Vyatohirsk, but also villages like Kamenka Dolina, mm, um, those villages which Bohorodicne. are Bohorodicne, but also the village which is called Yatskivka and, and many others. But we will. We will start our story with the story of a man who is called Mikhailo, whom we met in, in Izum and who lost seven members of his family because of the Russian uh, aviation bomb. Uh, uh, Russian aviation bomb in March twenty twenty two. Let's tell his story.
1: Well, uh, primarily, we've heard this story on the Ukrainian radio. Uh, this man was talking to Ukrainian journalists, so we found contacts and we just called him telling that we are, uh, we, were, we will be traveling to the region shortly and if he could meet us and tell, retell this story for international audience as well. And luckily he accepted. So when we arrived, so what we are talking about, we are talking about the Zoom, about these uh, multi-stories buildings, five-story buildings. They are a couple of them and some of them are completely destroyed by a Russian bombing in the beginning of March 2022. This particular building we will be describing now was ruined on the 9th of March 2022. It happened in the morning. So when we arrived, Uh, so the man was there his name is mihailo he is in his 60s right and the story of his family is really uh, tragic Um, he was an owner of a four-bedroom four-bedroom apartment in this um, in this very building he was uh, he raised their his three children they're adults now and he was already he was working as an electrician in the same building. And when a combat started back in feb- late February and beginning of March, there were a lot of shellings inside the city. So his daughter with, his, with her husband and with their three kids, three years old, 10 years old and 15 years old, they were really scared. So what they did at that very moment, they decided to come to the apartment where this young woman she grew up, so the apartment of her parents basically, and his father's Mikhailo. And so they moved in into these five story buildings on the street uh, Pershotravneva. Um uh, just a couple of days before before the strike. Um uh, The the shelling was really intense during these days. Uh, What was happening, Russians were trying to capture the city of Izum. Let us remind to our audience that Izum is a, is, a, is a very important strategically town. It's not not big town, but it's, it's strategically important because there are many roads and crossroads and railway. And that's why Russians did all they could just to capture the town as soon as they could. So what they were trying to do, they were shelling the city. And on the 9th of March, basically the shellings were so intense that out of... Uh, 60 plus inhabitants, residents of this building, most of them were already in the underground, right? So they were in the, in the bomb kind of, it's not a real bomb shelter, but it is underground of this very building. And what Mihala told us, they, they were all, all of his family, all members of his family, seven members of his family plus, plus himself, they were in the underground. And that then, and they didn't know at that moment, that there was already a strike against this similar building just across the street, so then the strike happened. What Mikhail remembered, he lost his conscience immediately, and when he wake up, woke up some time after that. He doesn't know what time exactly. He was um, under under the ruins. He was alive, and he was blocked. Right. So he he could not escape easily. And he spent a couple of hours trying to get out one of his legs just to get out of that. He so he, he had no perspective. He, he didn't know what happened. He was just uh, uh, blocked in between kind of walls. And finally, when he succeeded, he went out and he saw that the whole uh, part of this building is ruined.
0: Yes, and we we need to explain to our audience that uh, Russians were um, uh, striking, with aviation bombs, with pu- uh, with big and very destructive aviation bombs. We are told that this is five hundred kilogram bombs that they also used in Sumy, that they also used in Borodjanka and many other places. And for our audience to understand, to imagine a, a quite a big uh, five story building, residential building. Uh, built out of uh, white brick, um, so there are several dozens of families which are living there. There are two entrances, right? Two, two, two parts of. There were three parts. Three. three the one parts, is destroyed. Three parts. Three three entrances, and um, just one third. The whole one third of the building collapsed. There is nothing, and the uh, the, the strike was so hard that even people in in the in, in the underground in the basement and basement is made out of concrete, uh, big concrete baton blocks, not bricks. but uh, So you can imagine that the, the, the underground is is rather protective. And it, the building was shelled um, first by the Russian tanks. And uh, these people who were in the underground, they were okay, they were safe. But then comes this aviation bomb, which actually goes through the underground. And uh, and makes this whole building collapsing. So you probably see you probably saw these images from Borodanka where this is a huge building, residential building, and half of it or one third of it collapsed. You probably have also seen the these IZUM buildings. We have made several videos for our Twitter. So if you want to visualize them, go to our Twitter Ukraine World and um and um, maybe search Izum and you will find these buildings. And uh, this is indeed like, like incredible, this is a really war crime because it's just bombing, uh, deliberate bo- bombing of the residential buildings where, when the people are there. And you said that 52 people have died in this building, 52 people, and only about 10 or 15 survived.
1: Survived. Important detail. Most of people killed were already in the, in the underground. If, uh, if I'm not mistaken, only five people were upstairs and, but they were probably in a, in a different entry. They were quite far away from the, from the epicenter of the explosion. So that's how they survived. And five people survived in the basement in this underground. And among them, uh, Mihailo, we met. But, uh, so the time when, Everything happened. He was with his family, and he just accidentally stepped aside to make tea for his family. So
0: he he went to another little space. Space and it was in the his, same basement. His granddaughter, who is three years old, asked him to make to, tea. to make a tea to go to another another place, and uh, if he didn't go, he would he would also be dead. Yeah. So. The fact that his three three-year-old granddaughter asked him to go to this place actually saved his life, but uh, I don't know whether whether he enjoys it or regrets it, you know.
1: And basically, what was happening later? So when at the moment when Mikhailov was out of the building, uh, he was still uh, unaware of what happened. Imagine the city is under shellings. there is no community services, nobody to call. There is no uh, no connection, so you cannot you have no telephone. You have nothing just to call for help. And what was happening is that he stayed close to this building for for hours in the beginning, but then he he had to stay there for days and for weeks waiting for somebody to come to help because Russians were still um still attacking the city. And they did so until the first of April, right so there there were combats there were nobody to take care of the civilians who were there. He was trying to to listen to some sounds just with this desperate hope if somebody was alive, he could not enter him by by himself, the underground because it was all in ruins, so he had had no no free access there he was he had some one woman. He, by the way, he knows every, he knew everybody in this in this uh, building when he was describing the situation. He was mentioning names and surnames. He knew everything: where everybody was living, what kind of family it was, what were the names of their children, their grandchildren, etc. He was electrician in the same very building, so he knew everybody, literally everybody. And he described the situation with an old lady uh, who was screaming somewhere in the in, inside. They managed to to make the way until she, until the, uh, until her but the problem was that this woman was trapped in the ruins in a way that she couldn't go away so kind of her, her hand was in between different walls and they could do nothing for her she was screaming uh, and crying and what they did with a couple of neighbors who survived they were bringing water for her and if I'm not mistaken, he also mentioned food. Maybe they were bringing food for her, but the problem is that they couldn't get her out, and this woman was still alive, severely wounded, for a couple of days. Don't know exactly how many days, and then she died, trapped in this uh, in this basement. So w-
0: when I think about it, I'm, I mean, it's 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 very hard to think about it. Like a man who. Uh, who just understands that his family does not produce any sounds. So he asks them, he calls them, but there is no response from, from the grandchildren, from her daughter, from his daughter. And then during the month, almost a month, uh, and in Izum it's, it's a harsh war. It's a, It's a very, very hard war because it's a real, very hard battle and Russians are destroying everything and nothing is working. So there is no rescue team to get the bodies out. And uh, for for the whole month, he is just you know going around the building and and kind of uh, protecting it from looting or something else. And the rescue the, the rescue team comes only when Russia fully occupies the city. It's the first of April, so three weeks have passed, and then uh, they are doing for. For how long? For several weeks. I think for the whole month, the excavation, because the underground is full under the ruins. And I think he got the body, the bodies of his family when? In, in On the
1: 12th of May. So one by one, he was able to discover all the bodies of his uh, relatives, his wife, her uh, aunt, his daughter with her husband and three grandchildren, so, so seven.
0: For, for for two months he was kind of this. He was waiting for the bodies of his no, family.
1: No, no, for two months, for one month and one week, let, let us say. So the strike happened on the 9th of March, and he was able to see uh, the bodies on the twelfth of May of May. These are two oh, of, of, no, of, of April, sorry, of April, April. Of, of April. one month, one well, month. But and, but
0: he said that the the final the, the full excavations were finalised. I think in
1: the, uh, in, the end, May. in the end, in the end of the April, beginning of May. So yeah. other relatives, other families were uh, waiting even for longer. But um, he was all, he also told the story of the funeral. It is also very um, important because. Um, you probably remember the images of this uh, improvised cemetery in the forest of Izum where ex- exhumations were taking place right after the liberation of Izum and um people were buried there uh, very under 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 numbers and a lot of people who died in such situations were buried there but uh, the family of um, of Pan, of Mikhailo was lucky, lucky, if you can say lucky in this situation enough. He was there alive. So he, he took all the bodies and he was able to bury them correctly on an official cemetery under their real names. He was able to recognize the bodies of his relatives and to give them peace you know um, in this tragic situation so he was busy basically with all these things during the uh, big part of the occupation so he was just living close where he was living he was he stayed for first days close to the building he was living in it at his colleague's place I don't know several meters several thousand several hundreds meters from there, from the place so he was present on the site all the time and he was busy uh, by all these uh, activities during the first months of Russian occupation So and I keep
0: on thinking about this woman and maybe other people from the other house because these are kind of twin houses and uh, both of them were attacked by these huge horrific uh, sadistic bombs and imagine that there could be people that were like this woman. They were lying under the ruins, and crying for help, asking for help, but there was nobody to help her or just to take her out. And they were just very slowly dying of hunger, of thirst—I don't know of what. And another thing I'm I keep on thinking, what you mentioned is that really this Michaela knew everybody. So it, it's you should you should understand our listeners that there is this part of the Ukrainian society, which is mostly comes from the countryside, mostly elderly people who are, uh, they're not, they're not living the atomistic lives as uh, we kind of are more accustomed into the big, in in the big cities. Right. And I remember these times when in the Soviet union as well, these, the multi-story buildings were like, like small villages. Right. (laughs) And everybody knew the stories of every neighbor. So, there was you. You cannot really imagine that you, you don't know the names of your of your neighbors, and it'd be dozens of hundreds. And this also this sentiment of of community, which is which is very touchy, actually, in 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 the way how he how he spoke. And and really, funeral is very important. You are right that basically that mass grave that we have seen in Izum, it's about four hundred and fifty bodies, including. Our friend uh, Volodymyr Vakulenko, Ukrainian children writer, who was killed by the Russians and and buried there, but most of these people were without families, uh, and uh, most probably, and therefore they were buried like that because it was just one funeral service, which was working in just burying people, sometimes
1: even without the names. Um, another important thing I am thinking about uh, about this story, so. Um, uh, fortunately, fortune—they were really lucky to to get somebody alive. And uh, we mentioned uh, that Mihailo had three children, so one daughter um, died in this terrible uh, accident. But uh, he also has a son who lived out of Izum. Luckily enough, he was, by the way, eager to come to Izum at that time. But fortunately, she, he didn't come, so they survived. And I—I'm—I'm I'm still thinking about why why this uh, the family of his um, of his daughter they moved to this house thinking that they would be more protected there in a multi-story building and not in a countryside house and by the way as michalo told us her house is still there. Her own house in the zoom is still there. It is maybe a little bit damaged, but if, if he didn't even mention it. Maybe it's even not damaged at all. So if only she would stay there with her children. So I think
0: it's, it's a question of the underground. And during this war, we really see that people sometimes take decisions that uh, bring them to uh, to huge tragedies and it's of course not their fault because they were trying to think rationally we have seen lots of people who moved from the big cities to villages and uh, were trapped actually because the war didn't enter like our town Brovary or didn't enter fully Kiev but people who moved from Kiev or towns around Kiev to villages uh, they were very often trapped and uh, because there was fighting there and uh, here, yes, we have this very, very tragic uh, thing that the mo- the family moved actually from a more safe place to a place of their death, eventual death.
1: Um, what you were also told by Mikhailo what is important to understand that during all this rescue work, which lasted for many weeks, after the strike, after the occupation, uh, Russian occupation of the city, uh, what people, what Michala told us is that Russians were not interfering, they were not helping at all, so they just were absolutely indifferent to what was going on, so do it by yourself, this is uh, simply your problem. We were walking a lot inside this multi-story building. You know, when you enter an apartment and you see kind of... Uh, uh, still life around so you can see furniture you can see uh, i don't know toys for children uh, books uh, all these human belongings which are still there but uh, and the, everything is covered by by the pieces of glass by pieces of metal um by all the destruction and ruins and you 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 can precisely feel how the life stopped there at one moment in one second and we were really impressed by this flat on the fifth floor of this apartment when you enter this apartment you can see a piano which is literally close to the abyss close to this emptiness you know just on the other on side so it, it literally can fall but it's still there one year after the strike And uh, you can easily imagine somebody playing this piano and later... We've seen that uh, photos were put on this piano. So there were maybe some journalists or maybe family members. We don't know who came because we visited this um, multi-story buildings two times. They put the photos of the young uh, young girl playing this piano and a photo album of photos showing the same uh, girl in the different occupations. Somewhere in the seaside. Somewhere with some teachers or whatever, so you can literally see how the life, the whole life, the, or the whole family stopped at one moment, and you can feel this, uh, this tragedy because it's still here one year after the strike, um, and there's something is, which comes beyond words.
0: Yes, you can. I hope if I don't forget, I will put the links to our Twitter where we put this video so you can you can see it with your eyes. Um, of course, videos do not really do not really translate what what you what you see on the ground, but still, it can it can give give you a little bit of sentiment or emotion that uh, about what happened.
1: And unfortunately, this is happening uh the, the precisely the time we were in Zoom, We were traveling to Zoom. Uh, the second time, the the same happened in Uman. So these strikes, uh, this strike was by missile, but nevertheless the same story. So there were also six children um, were killed during the strike. 23 people died. So it's happening, unfortunately. It could happen uh, in a city which is even not occupied or even not um, on the front line. So it could happen in any ukrainian city or town yeah if you if, literally you, if you can
0: imagine a kind of a safe city that will be somewhere in the center of ukraine and this was happened in uman um when they just sent a missile on a residential building some people say that uh, they used the old maps and uh, thought that it was a a military object or whatever, but but let's come. Uh, I think we will talk about this maybe in one of our next conversations about these residential buildings that were that suffered and and make a kind of a list of them. What we have seen with our own eyes. Uh, l- let us l- 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 let us just finish the story of Mikhailo and uh, just imagine that this man, after all which has happened, I actually cannot really figure out how he continues to live. And he, we met him one year after. He actually, he is full of life. He he wants to live further. I think he went through very difficult circumstances. But he, after all that, he saved the life of, of his friend because uh, his friend, I think he was uh, kind of a leading some cultural institution in Izum and uh, Russians were, eager to kidnap him or kill him or threaten him. And he just put him in his car and drove him through all the occupied territories in eastern Ukraine, through Russia, through the countries, through Belarus, Baltic states, to Poland, I think. And then back to Ukraine. And then back to Ukraine. So this man found the forces to save another person's life, literally,
1: Important detail, this friend has a chronic disease. So what he lacked most, he lacked medicine because there were no pharmacy working at that time in his Zoom. So basically, I, we can, Im- we, he didn't mention the age by, but I, my guess is that this was an old man. So in, in his sixties, maybe like Mikhailo. So they made this crazy journey, uh, with the, in, on a Ukrainian car because this man, he had a car, but he couldn't drive so Mikhailo drove him literally through occupied territories and Russia and baltic states and then he Mikhailo was able to join his son um in the central ukraine region so uh, so he was still able to 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 spend some time with his the rest of his family but most uh, the, the most striking um, detail is that then he was invited to come back to Izum after the liberation, so he he arrived quite shortly after the liberation, and he found a job. So he was proposed a job uh, in Izum, which he accepted, and so what he does basically now he has an apartment of his daughter, which is still you can live in because he lost his own apartment but he he found it he founded uh let us say a woman which he lives with her now, so it's it's about hope it's about about that life continues even if you' are in your sixties and um we cannot we will never be able to imagine uh what this man was through during these first hours, days, weeks, and months after the strike uh but uh but his story also is a story of how you can survive and continue to live despite these the completely awful circumstances.
0: Yeah, so let's move on. We visited other places as well, and maybe we'll just briefly inform you about what we have seen and maybe some of our impressions. Let us talk to something positive uh, or the, the kind of a bright side of it, not bright, but maybe good side of it, that in many places which are under the ruins, we, we have seen that the life gradually comes back, like scrolling a uh, little bit, uh, step by step comes back. We have, we spent a night uh, with our colleagues from pan-Ukraine. Uh, that we made a volunteer trips to 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 these areas. We spent a night in Sviatohirsk, and we informed you about Sviatohirsk. I think in a couple of uh, episodes before. This is a really lovely town, uh, which had about four thousand people uh, before the big war. Next to it is uh, one of the one of the big monasteries, the Sviatohirsk Lavra. A wonderful wonderful river, which is called Siversky Donets. And then there was a both religious and recreation space, a recreation place, so lots of fine hotels in pine forests with with uh, with basins, with uh, with pools, with everything, with spa, with everything you need. Uh, the last time we visited it, we have seen only ruins. This time the ruins are there, but we, we just went a little bit farther and uh, we stayed in a hotel, in a hotel in a forest which provides delicious food and fantastic restaurant. There are civilians who come, there are military who come there. So imagine a town 30 kilometers from the front line, fully destroyed, but still there is something which is functioning. And uh, the town where the Russian uh, missiles can come uh, at any moment, and they were actually arriving after after the liberation. And then we've talked to to a person who is in charge of the of the city and uh, who is kind of a mayor of the head of military administration, and he showed us what what is going on, what he tries to do for the civilians. And uh, this is quite an energetic man, so he is kind of a full of full of hope. He he is sure that Russians will never come back here. He is certainly sure about that, and he is saying how the 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 town is trying to. Uh, revive itself, and it was quite promising.
1: Yeah, the, the biggest problem in Svetogirsk was the water sub- supply for multi-story buildings. So they were organizing collective showers for for for, for civilians, so that people could freely wash themselves uh, every day, most every day, in these improvised showers. And they also could do some laundry. Uh, everything is for free, and some free trips for for local people to Slovyansko, Svetohi- to Slovensko Kramatorsk to to get cash because there was no cash machines in Svatogorsk and some other and some other services Including book crossing, book crossing for people. I mean, books to read for, for, for people who are still there. And it's some kind of, some kind of uh, hope for the city. He also mentioned that Svetogirsk is, uh, would be and will be, as he hopes, uh, an important place for humanitarian missions and for volunteers and for military as well, because it's uh, a pretty, uh, its situation is pretty good. So just a good connection to uh, Slavyansk and Kramatorsk and then to Liman and some other places later. So uh, for many people, it will be a good place to stay. So this gives a hope for, for, com- for commercial things. I don't know, for restaurants, for hotels. Uh, because before, before the big war, there were a lot of hotels in Svetogirsk. It was really good place to stay. And so he hopes that everything will be back and they will be able to, to reconstruct this beautiful, really beautiful, uh, town. In a short time, given that there would be no no more aggression, no more um, advance of Russian troops uh, to the area, and maybe another example: if you if we traveled also to Kharkiv and we visited we revisited Saltivka, Saltivka, you remember the this district of Kharkiv which suffered the most, maybe from Russian shelling and specifically from Russian artillery. And when we visited it in summer twenty twenty two, it was a really apocalyptic landscape, you know, with all these multi-story buildings severely damaged by artillery, nobody on the street, so it was really, really tragic. But what we mentioned this time is that there is already a beginning of reconstruction on Saltivka. So if we are if you are on the street named after Natalia Ushvi, a famous Ukrainian actress, um Uh, You can see that there's already all these uh, uh, machines on the sides and people are working just to reconstruct really apartment by apartment and... um, uh, so, and they were, pro- they already protected all the windows and they're really reconstructing these damaged, uh, multi-story buildings, which gives hope that in a time, uh, people would be able to come back. So they will be not uh, demolishing all these buildings. They will be reconstructing them. And all of this is happening just uh, weeks or maybe days, we don't know, before, uh, U- Ukrainian counteroffensive. So the voice going on but uh, but in Kharkiv people are already reconstructing what was destroyed during uh, 2022
0: yeah we've been to Slovyansk and Kramatorsk and we were surprised to see children there and our our colleague Ukrainian writer Victoria Amelina made a uh, made a workshop for children in Sloviansk it was it was very touchy and we went to Kramatorsk to a volunteer center we we brought some uh, uh, some equipment for the military and for the civilians and we also brought uh, brought books and uh, we we try to test the hypothesis that books are also needed on the front line and uh, needed 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 by the military we'll see what what will happen with them and whether whether it's working uh, so life really can come back and comes back quite quite quickly under the situation that there is no security threats, there is no shelling. And even if you are in ruins, even if you are surrounded by minefields, people are eager to come back. Mostly elderly people, of course, but they they have this feeling of homes. So um, I think that if you are afraid that Ukraine will be... uh, will be left in ruins for eternity after this war this is not true there is this big force in ukrainians uh, this big love for life and uh, and uh, love for their homes and love for their land that that in a couple of years i think everything will be fine but uh, for this we need victory and we need uh, we need liberation of our territories right
1: yeah, and even visually, when you cross a damaged or ruined village, it's quite clear. When you see uh, a lot of houses covered by this kind of blue tissue, provided by many international humanitarian organizations, by Samaritan, if I'm not mistaken. So they people. So if a house is covered by this tissue, it means that people were visiting this house they were trying um, to protect it for uh, against further uh, further um, damages uh, protecting it against snow against rain so uh, it's a it was a kind of a clear sign that somebody is taking care of this particular house, this particular home, that people are thinking about the future. They Even if they don't have money or resources to reconstruct it right now, they are thinking about this possibility in the future. And when you see these blue spots in a ruined village, it gives you hope.
0: Yes, for example, when you come on the road uh, from Izum to Kamyanka, and this is coming, coming from the hill to to a valley and the first time we entered there i remember this completely destroyed village like hundreds of homes which are destroyed and uh, the the roofs are inexistent there are just uh, a few wooden wooden blocks uh, in instead of the roof like skeletons like skeletons of some some animals you kind of enter enter the the big home cemetery, right? And uh, this image, this metaphor that homes are also people and you can have this cemetery of homes is also present in Ukrainian art. We have seen uh, uh, a wonderful Ukrainian artist, Kristantin Zorkin from Kharkiv, who is now taking this as a metaphor, uh, cemeteries of houses. And he makes the images of the multi-story houses in wood like a plaques, on the on the cemetery, like those tables on the cemetery. This is really, really, I think this is a strong metaphor. So now every time we, we, we go to this Kamyanka, for example, we see more and more of these houses covered by this blue tissue, which, which says that at least these houses will be protected from snow and rain, and probably there will be time for, for reconstruction. So, we'll probably end on this uh This was a podcast explaining ukraine uh this was very very personal personal issue today we We have told you uh some very very tragic stories, but we hope that hope is 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 of course of course there hope is present, and there is a strength among Ukrainian people to go through these very very difficult things and come back stronger. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermol, I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Titiano Harkova, who is Ukrainian scholar and journalist uh, and head of international department at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Don't forget to support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We really, really need your support for, to continue our podcasting and reporting. And you can also support our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at paypal ukraine.resistinggmail.com. Uh, for French speakers, let me announce that we can have we, we have also with Titiana a French-speaking podcast, which is called face à la guerre, Ukraine Facing the War. You can find it anywhere on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever wherever you like. Thank you for listening. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.